Hello, everyone. It's really, really good to be here. Um, John Mark is uh, one of my dearest, closest, best friends. And uh, like Gerald said, our churches are like forged together because we started on the very same Sunday. And this is before I even knew uh, who John Mark was or before I met him. So it feels like our, our churches are like intertwined in destiny. I don't know what that means, but that's what it feels like. Um, so as a part of your summer practice on community, John Mark asked me to teach on a skill from the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course or the Emotionally Healthy Relationships uh, series. If you ever, you guys went through Emotionally Healthy Relationships Spirituality um, and Emotionally Healthy um, uh, Spirituality and Emotionally Healthy Church a while ago, and you guys continued to like forge that into your, your community. So I want to teach tonight on the topic of how we stop mind reading and clarify expectations. So tonight's teaching will be um, very <laughs> practical. Did someone say, I heard someone say, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, uh, so I'll be teaching on that. So it's very practical. You will, you can use a Bible. I will be referencing some scriptures. I will be reading some from Proverbs, uh, especially um, in Proverbs and Exodus will be where I'm coming out of. And um, before I get started, let me just pray uh, again before, before I go. Lord, I want to commit to you my, my throat and my mind and my heart, um, my, all of my capacities to you, Lord. I want to just be under the power and the inspiration of your spirit. Thank you that your love has saved me, that you've saved many, many people in this room, and I pray that even more so uh, tonight, your kingdom would expand by drawing people near you. Lord, I, I, um, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, and may our ears and our hearts be like in step with your spirit tonight as you teach us in the strong, powerful name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Behind me is a, um, a, a old video an old video that you can find on YouTube. It might look like an Atari game for some of you who are super old or if you're like super hipster that you still play Atari for some reason. Um, it's from 1944 study called An Experimental Study of Apparent Behavior by Fritz uh, Heider and Marianne Smell. So here's the thing. Watch it. Pay attention to it as I talk. It was a landmark study where people were told to watch this short film and we were asked what is happening in this film. Now, if you're not watching what we're watching, the film showed two triangles in a circle moving across a two-dimensional surface. The only other object on the screen was a stationary rectangle partially open on one side like a door with, on a hinge. When asked what was happening in this very short film, only one test subject saw the scene for what it was, geometric shapes moving across a plane. <laughs> only one person got it right. Everyone else, including me, the very first time I watched this, made up an elaborate story <laughs> to explain and make sense of what we're seeing. Like, the big triangle is, is a bully <laughs> trying to beat up the small triangle and take the circle home to his secret lair or something. Or there's like an angry drunk dad who doesn't approve of his daughter's boyfriend and he's going after. Or they're all in prison. This is my favorite one. And the big triangle is a guy named Big Bubba. And the circle is the prison guard who's escorting the new guy to a cell. And everything kind of breaks loose from there. Whatever, right? Whatever. See, instead of registering inanimate shapes, 
Most of us watch this and imagine humans which, with vivid inner lives. And the point is, we are storytelling people. We see the world in stories that we tell ourselves, and it happens automatically. This happens without us even knowing it's happening. Anytime we see almost anything, we make up a story. And these stories that we tell ourselves have an enormous impact on our emotions. They have an enormous impact on our feelings. I don't know about you, but I was viscerally angry at the large triangle when I watched this for the first time. I'm like, I know who that triangle is. This is the, what's wrong with the world. I know the triangle's name. I know where he lives, like that sort of thing. I know. See, we tell ourselves stories to make sense of the world, and this is beautiful. And it's the main reason we have so many problems in our relationships. See, we make up stories about why so-and-so looked at us that way or why so-and-so didn't text us back, even though we saw the dot-dot-dot bubble, but they never ended up texting us back. <laughs> we make up elaborate stories about our family or about our spouses or our community or our coworkers, about our bosses and even about our pastors. A friend of mine from church came up to me a few weeks ago and he said, Dave, I need to, I need to like, you know, ask for your forgiveness because um, I've been keeping my distance from you recent, recently. I've been de detaching from you as my pastor and as a friend. And I'm like, what, what, what's up? Like, I, what, what, what happened? What did, I, did I do something? What, what, what's going on? And this person said it was because a Sunday, a f like several weeks before this, after church, Everyone's up front mingling, talking, whatever. And he was talking to someone, and he turned and he bumped the communion table. Now we have these communion tables with, with the elements on top of it. And he bumped the communion table and nearly knocked over the blood of Christ. And he's like, oh, and he like bumped it. And he looks, he said I was standing like kind of down the way from him. And he bumps it and he looks right at me. And him and I caught eyes. And then I gave him a look. He says, you looked at me like with a look. And that look was clearly... I'm mad at you. Why did you bump over the blood of Christ? That sort of thing. <laughs> and so he's like, oh. And he, that's, he said, I looked at him that way. And then he said, I came back to church the next Sunday, and we moved communion. And he said, well, it's because I bumped the communion that they moved communion. And then he says, wait, but you didn't even talk to me about me bumping communion. You just passive-aggressively had communion moved. <laughs> and that kind of person can't be trusted. You didn't confront me on this, and so I started pulling away from you for a while because I don't know if I can trust that kind of person or that kind of pastor, pastor that would get mad at me but then passive-aggressively just like not ever talk to me about it but move the communion table. And then he stopped to like, okay, what's your defense? Like, this is why I need to say sorry. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I, don't remember, I don't remember you up front. I don't remember you bumping communion. I don't remember lo locking eyes with you. I don't remember any of that. That's not... And we move communion after second, during second uh, set of worship often because it depends on the response time, what we're doing. So we move it, we move it quite often. He's like, wait, really? Are you, this, you, none of this happened? I'm like, no. I mean, you probably bumped communion and we're not like high church. So like, that's like, but you had to take it up with Christ. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> and he was like, wait. And then, so then I ended with saying, can I use this story in my sermon? And then it ended really, really well. So we do this kind of thing in a million ways every single day. Yesterday, we had a marriage conference with John Orberg and Nancy Orberg, husband and wife, and their 
John's a very famous author and one of my mentors, and so they're doing this thing. And Nancy shared a story. She said that someone from church just recently came up to Nancy and said, I noticed your husband's shoes and how he has scuffs on the top of his shoes, and I know why the top of his shoes are scuffed. And Nancy was like, wait, what? what? First of all, why are you looking at my husband's shoes? And second of all, what are you talking about? And she says, I know why there's scuffs on the top of your husband's shoes because he's always kneeling and praying. And Nancy's like, no, <laughs> not at all. And I need to fix, I need to like buff out my husband's shoes because no, that is not true at all. We, this is what we do. We make up stories about like we see someone, someone scuffs on their shoes and we're like, my pastor prays on his knees all day long, so much so that he is wearing out his shoes praying. This is the kind of stuff that we make up. And I do this kind of thing too, for good or for bad. When, we don't, when I don't see someone for a long time at church, I make up a story about why they're not at church anymore. When someone retweets something I don't agree with, I make up a story in my head that they did that for me. They were retweeting it so I saw it to get mad at me, and they become the triangle. And I know their motives and their intentions, and I'm sure of it. And this story that I tell myself makes sense to me. And what happens is the stories we tell ourselves have a huge effect on our emotions. Jerry Scazzaro says in her book on emotionally healthy, uh, emotionally healthy women, which I think everyone should read this book. It's really, really good. She says this, the stories we tell ourselves have an enormous impact on our feelings. Consider the difference of what goes on in your mind when a friend who agrees to meet you for dinner is 40 minutes late. How different are your feelings when you tell yourself, maybe he had an accident driving here, or this relationship is clearly more important to me than it is to him? Each interpretation generates a different feeling. Why? Because our feelings are closely related to the story we tell ourselves about the things going on around us. To quit faulty thinking and maintain good emotional and spiritual health, we must make an an intentional decision to stop mind reading and to verify our assumptions by actually talking to people and in person instead of in our heads. Talk to people in person instead of in our heads. Now, the book of Proverbs, which I, I said to open up to in chapter 18, has a lot to say about this. Proverbs is, is, a, uh, is, a, is a book of wisdom in the Hebrew scriptures. And this is what it says. Proverbs 18.2 says this. Fools find no pleasure in understanding but delight in airing their own opinion. So fools, they don't, they don't find pleasure in understanding a situation when something goes wrong or there's a breakdown in communication. Fools don't find, find no pleasure in like understanding what's going on. They like to mind read and air out their own opinions about life, air out their own opinions about the story that they tell in their heads. They love to do that. Proverbs 18, 13 says, to answer before listening, to answer someone before listening, to answer someone before hearing their side of the story about what really happened is folly and shame. Proverbs 18.15 says, the heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, for the ears of the wise seek it out. Now, this, 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 this idea is actually codified in the law of the Ten Commandments. It's actually the Ninth Commandment. And the Ninth Commandment goes like this. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is a really important commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, let me explain this. Let me explain how this ties into what I'm saying. In the Exodus, when God was restructuring a former slave community into a nation and kingdom of priests who represent God to the world, 
he set in motion the way this community was to treat one another. And the ninth commandment realizes that viable human community depends on truth-telling. For a community to happen inside of a church, inside of a city, inside of a nation, inside our society, this depends on telling the truth. This commandment isn't really concerned with personal little white lies that we tell, though there are scriptures that deal with that. What this commandment is getting at is the public portrayal of reality. This commandment insists that when we give, false, when we give testimony about another person, we must resist every distortion of reality. We must speak the truth about them, we, lest we condemn an innocent person. See, the way the Ten Commandments work is that they forbid the most extreme form of any particular sin. So murder is the worst kind of hatred, and adultery is the most uh, destructive sexual sin and so on. The Ninth Commandment forbids the deadliest kind of lie, one that condemns an innocent person for a crime they did not commit. Okay, so that's the, that's the Ninth Commandment, but hear me out here how, how, how this connects to what I'm saying. When we jump to conclusions about un- other people that likely are not true, when we assume we know why someone did what they did or tell ourselves a story based on our opinions or observations of an event, we are risking believing and even telling a lie about that person. Can you imagine if my friend went around and said, Dave is a passive-aggressive pastor that moved communion because I bumped into it. He's so petty that he wouldn't, he's like so OCD about communion that when I bumped it over, he got really mad and he had communion move and he didn't talk to me. Like if he went around and talked about that to his community and talked about that to people, like that he would be bearing false witness against my character. When we do this, we risk believing and even telling a lie about a person when we assume we know the story. Again, in emotionally healthy relationships course, it says this. Every time I make an assumption about someone without confirming it, I am at risk for believing a lie about this person. My assumption is just a breath away from misrepresenting reality. Because I have not checked out my assumption with the other person, it is very possible I'm believing something untrue and effectively bearing false witness against my neighbor. I am especially prone to this temptation when the other person has hurt or disappointed me. That also makes it more likely I will pass on my false assumption to others. When we exchange reality for a mental creation, a hidden assumption, we enter a counterfeit world. At that point, we exclude God from our lives because God does not exist outside reality and truth. We also wreck relationships by creating needless confusion and conflict. See, assumptions in relationships, mind reading, as they call it in emotionally healthy relationships, have the possibility of being as unjust as condemning an innocent person by your false testimony. It destroys lives. When you mind read, when you assume a story, this has the potential of destroying lives. I'll tell you that at the root of every relational problem and blow up in my life, at some that had some serious damage in my life, some of it almost completely ruining my life for a very long time. At the, at the core of it is this problem. Stories that someone told themselves about me that they never confirmed with me. 
And the same is true with what I've done. The when I have destroyed or hurt people in their life, it's because I believed a story about them. I told myself a story about them that was not true, that was not based in me having a conversation with them, but based on the story that I told myself. And this actually doesn't just like happen in one-on-one relationships or in community or in marriage. This actually works its way out socially. These stories that we tell ourselves or we assume about others is at the root of where stereotypes and prejudice and discrimination come from. I mean, you might have learned this. I'm, I'm sure you have in university or, or college. But this is what a, a stereotype is a belief that associates a group of people with certain traits. So think of a stereotype like a thought. These are thoughts that we have towards other people. They can be good or bad. They're a stereotype. For example, all women are nurturing is a stereotype. Or all progressive people are woke. That's a stereotype, right? That's what we think. Like, oh, you're progressive, you're super woke. But that's not true. But that is a stereotype. Now, these are beliefs. These are things that we think that can be both positive and negative. So stereotypes come from stories we tell ourselves about, groups of people. But then it moves from a stereotype to a prejudice. And a prejudice are negative feelings. They move from a thought of being a stereotype to actually a feeling, an emotion, towards persons based on their membership in certain groups. So this is a a prejudice is a feeling, and it's felt negatively, and it's experienced negatively. For example, Latino women are irrational. That is a negative feeling. Black men are dangerous is a prejudice. It's a negative feeling towards a group of people based on a story that you were sold. Now, discrimination takes it one step further. So a stereotype is a thought. Prejudice is a feeling. Discrimination is a behavior. Discrimination is a behavior directed against persons because of membership in a certain group. This is our acting out. For example, me growing up, I'm a Mexican. And so growing up, I grew up playing baseball. And then when I, I got injured in high school playing baseball, and so someone introduced me to the sport of golf. And so I started playing junior golf in high school. And because of junior golf, and if you golf, hit me up. Um, and I, when I was playing junior golf, I would get into uh, certain golf courses and country clubs to play. And whenever I did as being Mexican, people thought I worked there all the time. They assumed I worked there. They would treat me as if I worked there. They would hand me things like as if I worked there. When I walked into certain places, they'd give me a look like, you don't belong here. What are you doing? This is not where you're allowed to be. I got this, this happened to me all the time growing up. My African-American friend who lives in the progressive woke Bay Area just a few weeks ago, (laughs) just a few weeks ago, was walking into a store and a woman saw him and visibly clutched her purse when he walked past her. This is discrimination. Now, why do I bring this up? Because I like the tension it puts in the room. No, that's not why I bring it up. (laughs) I bring this up because all of these have its roots in stories that we tell ourselves assumptions we make about people groups, about people. And it's my argument that at its core, doing this on all levels is bearing false witness. We do this in our marriages. We do this in our community groups. We do this in our churches. We do this in our, our, our places of work. We do this in our neighborhoods about other neighbors or people that live in our apartment building. And we do this with groups of people that work its way out and ultimately in discrimination. Now, at this point, it's probably good to hold up an example of someone who did it right. 
Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a remarkable example of someone who did not take things personally when she probably could have. It's quite moving to ponder her apparent lack of resentment towards Joseph after he planned to divorce her quietly. We don't read about any resentment there. As far as we know, she had no nasty words for the innkeeper who wouldn't give her a room even though she was nine months pregnant. My wife would have had some words, <laughs> like some serious words. Later, when it came to time to consecrate uh, the baby Jesus in the temple, uh, Simon informed her that a sword will pierce your soul too. Rather than being, than being offended or resentful toward this old man for his difficult words, as any protective parent would be, the Bible says that Mary, all she did was ponder and treasure these things in her heart. We don't know what Mary was thinking, but she could have easily convinced herself there must be something wrong with me. Or she said she could have thought there's something that must be wrong with this baby. Or there's something wrong with all the people around me. But what she does is she appears to demonstrate great restraint and not telling herself negative stories about others when, she's, when she did not understand their action. And it's her ability to not take things personally, which is perhaps one of the great secrets of Mary's spirituality. So the first skill is to stop mind reading, stop assuming stories about other people in our communities. But here's the second, and this one's framed in a more positive way, something that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, instead of mind reading, you're supposed to clarify expectations. Now, I think we can all understand why this is such an important skill. Unmet expectations wreak havoc on our relationships. People leave jobs over unmet expectations. Churches split over unmet expectations. Couples divorce over unmet expectations. Families stop talking over unmet expectations. Communities and community groups and missional communities dissolve due to unmet expectations. And the really mischievous thing about expectations is oftentimes we don't know we have them until they go unmet. See, expectations have a way of living in our subconscious until someone disappoints us. I remember when Ashley and I, my wife and I, we first got married, and we were both putting on the sheets um, after laundry, and I was standing on one side of the bed, she was another. She grabbed the sheets, the sheets out of like the, the clean clothes basket type of thing, and she starts just putting on the sheets. And I remember saying, whoa, whoa, wait, um, aren't you going to iron the sheets first? Aren't, aren't we going to iron the sheets first? And she just stopped and just looked at me like, what? What'd you say? I'm like, I, iron iron the, the wrinkled, like iron the sheets. And I guess I had this subconscious expectation that when we got married, we would like suddenly live in a hotel. I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> but I was like thinking that this is what, like it's wrinkled and we're married and we can do what we want. Let's iron the sheets. And she's like, no, you're an insane person. And that will never happen. I will never do that. And you will never do that. And we will never do that. We're not doing this, that sort of thing. Now, here's the problem with most expectations we carry in our relationships. The problems with expectation are they tend to be unconscious. So our expectations live in our unconsciousness. We have expectations we're not even aware of until someone disappoints us. And then they like emerge from our unconscious. Like, oh my gosh, I, we should, 
I thought we were going to iron the sheets. I thought we'd be like this perfect little married couple that have like pressed warm iron sheets at night or something. I don't know. And they're unconscious and they live buried there until someone disappoints us. That's the problem with expectations. They're also, another problem is that they're unrealistic. Sometimes like pressed bed sheets, that's an unrealistic expectation. Sometimes we enter into relationship, whether it's with a spouse or a friend or a pastor, and we think they're going to be available to us at all times to meet all of our needs. We show up to a community group, and we expect it to be like the one that we got saved in back in Iowa, where we're from. And we move here, and we're like, you guys suck. <laughs> like, you guys are not a community like I thought. Like, what would you think? Well, I thought, like, we're going to spend, like, almost every night together. It'd be like friends, but a Christian version of friends, you know? Like, I swear I thought, like, no, that's unrealistic. Like, that's not a thing. Like, we are in med school and this sort of thing, and we have jobs. Like, that's, that's just, it can't happen. We have these unrealistic expectations that our spouse is going to meet all of our intimate emotional needs, all of them. And you realize that you're just married to another person that can't meet all your needs, just like you can't meet all their needs. And your expectations live in this unrealistic category. The third problem with expectations is that they're unspoken. Sometimes we'll have an expectation, and but we never told anyone about it. We have an expectation about our spouse or a friend or an employee or our boss, and we never told them about it. Or our pastor, and it's unspoken. Like, I started going to this church because I thought you were going to be my mentor. I thought I was going to be the next person. And like, I thought that was going to happen or whatever. And like, whoa, 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 you never told me that. And I would have said no, but you never said that. You never told me that we ha you had this expectation. And you can't get disappointed and angry when you never told me your expectation. This is what happens. They're unspoken. And lastly, they're unagreed upon. Say, we do speak them out. Say, like, yeah, I started coming to your church, and I had expected that we had coffee every Wednesday, and you would walk me through the Old Testament, and you would teach me how to teach, and all this other stuff. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't agree on that. I can't agree to that. There's no way I can do that. And so there, it's, you have to allow the other person to listen to your expectation and then agree upon it. So this is how expectations need to be validated in your community, Expectations can only be real or validated when they have been mutually agreed upon. So here are how expectations must live or must be in our communities, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our church. They have to be conscious, realistic, spoken, and agreed upon. Now, some of you are thinking, that seems like a lot of work. Yes, being an adult is a lot of work. <laughs> Like, I just need to say that to you because you need to hear this. Like, being an adult, being an emotionally mature, healthy adult takes work, like a lot of relational work. It just does. To be in a really good community takes work. To be in a really good church takes work. To, be, to make your apartment building great to live with your neighbors takes work. This takes work, so it's not going to be easy. So here, here's how you do it. Conscious. Become aware. Spend time in, the, in like, whether it's in your, in your marriage or in your job, like, sit with yourself, with the Spirit of God, become aware of the expectations that you have. Next, ask yourself or the other person if your expectation is realistic. If it's not, it should just stop there. Like, this is not a realistic expectation, and I need to, like, 
move this in from an expectation to something different. So is it realistic? Ask yourself. Thirdly, is it spoken? Have you, you need to sit down with this other person or persons and say, can I clearly, directly, and respectfully, as another human made in the image of God, share with you what my expectations are? Now, this is most poignant, most like, probably applicable right now in your, in your missional communities, in your community group. That's like probably the most applicable thing, that you might have expectations in your community and for your community that need to be spoken. There needs to be like a DTR in your community of like, let's just define what this is and let's speak out what our expectations are and if we can meet them. So speak them out clearly, directly, respectfully to the other person or persons. And lastly, agree upon it. The other person has to be aware and like, yeah, we can do that. Now, I have this, these four things, written down in a note on my phone, and I come back to them often when I'm in conflict. So whether I'm in conflict with a staff member or my wife or uh, a friend, or I, I usually come back to, the, to this. And I'm like, I'm going to start here because typically when, I'm, when there's beef between or tension between a friend or someone else and I, it's usually here. If it's not here, then I, I move on to a different tool. But I usually start here. For example, John Mark and I, a few years ago, had a situation when we were traveling together, and like we had some unmet expectations in like how we would travel financially together, and like who would pick up the tab here and there, and that sort of thing. And we just never had a, a, a clarifying conversation around that until we did this, and it was like there was tension and a little anger. And so we had to have like a, like a DTR around like expectations. Like, let's just define how we're going to travel together when we travel and like the, the, like the finances of traveling and how this all works. And, it, and where there was tension before and the conversation was really awkward and difficult, now there's so much freedom. There's like, you don't even have to worry about it. We, we know, we have expectations of when we travel together, when we're together, like, the, the, like how it all works out when like, the bill comes or this comes or more, like that sort of thing, there's, it's, cl it's clear. My wife and I have to do this often with like the kitchen. Like what does it mean to clean, quote, clean the kitchen? And there has to be this clarifying conversation that happens like every two days. Like just like recently my wife's like, Dave, finish the kitchen. I'm like, what do you mean? I just, just say it. She goes, you know what I mean. I'm like, I don't. Like, just say it explicitly, because I'll do it. She goes, don't be stubborn. And then we have to have this conversation around, like, <laughs> let's clarify what we both mean by this so they're conscious, realistic, spoken, agreed-upon expectations. That sort of thing. And you have to, like, repeat them. Now, I will say this. You might hear this and, like, oh, my gosh, this is so helpful. Like, I, I have these written down. I'm going to, yep, I'm, this is really helpful. Thank you. The, the thing is with this, this tool, this, this um. The skill is you have to practice it. Don't just write it down. Don't just hold it in your head. Keep doing it. Do it with your, your employees or your boss, your coworkers, your team you're working with. Do it with your roommates. Do it, like, keep doing this, even though it's work. You have to practice this. Now, question. What about when an expectation goes unmet? What happens when there's uh, something happens and the expectation isn't met. Well, this is where a clarifying conversation is needed in your relationship. Let's say your community had a movie night every, at your place every first Saturday of the month for two years. And then someone in the group gets married, and with their new, like, married, quote, schedule, whatever that is, they don't make it anymore, or they can't make movie night anymore. 
And you're like, you're really bummed. You're like, wait, we've been doing this for years. And I expected you to write this movie night like into your vows. Like you, we had clarifying, like this is what we do, right? This is what we do. This is how we keep our community like fun and exciting. Like show up to this thing. Well, if that happens and the other person says, I'm married now, I actually, this commitment I can't, I, can't, I can't give to you right now. Just where we're at, it's just not a wise thing. Well, then what needs to happen with you is you need to move it from an expectation into a hope. Sometimes the other person can't meet your expectations anymore. When they used to be able to, they can't do that thing anymore. So you say, you do this, I'm going to move into a hope, and I hope that you and your spouse can make movie night on the first Saturday of the month. I hope. And then you have to mourn the loss. You have to, you have to mourn the, the, the fact that there was a time when your community was like uh, in a different spot and everyone wanted to be together all the time and text, but now life is different and schedules are different and there's different relationships and different relational dynamics. And you have to move it into a hope and then mourn the loss. You could say, I hope that you make it sometimes. Well, what if they say yes to your expectation, but it doesn't happen? Well, this is interesting because maybe they felt like they couldn't say no. Maybe you're the kind of person that can get people to say yes, and the person that you're talking with is the kind of person that says yes to everything. And so then you're, 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 not, you're not given an expectation, you're given a demand. And this is why the clarifying, you have to sort that out in your community. Maybe you weren't clear enough, and maybe they thought they could, but they ended up they couldn't do it. This is where you have to explore what broke down. See, what you don't do is you don't use expectations to write off a, write off a relationship. You use it as a base of having really good and hard conversations when they need to be had. Now, lastly, what if God doesn't meet my expectations? Now, this is a very interesting question because when we have expectations, they tend to be detailed expectations. We don't, we usually move expectations from the general and even abstract things like God is faithful to the very detailed, like, I expect God to be faithful by making me relatively happy and stable and not too much suffering all at once. And when I do go through suffering, that it turns around to glory, like, really fast. Like, I'm suffering, and then by that night, it resolves itself like a 30-minute sitcom. Like, it just resolves itself <laughs> And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I this is what I learned today, and it was amazing. Like, that's what I expect. So we, 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 we move the general idea that God is faithful to, like, God is faithful in this way to me. God will be faithful. And so we have expectations that we place on God. So let me say this. God will not meet your expectations. We want to know what God is doing, when he will do it, and what it will look like when he begins to do it. Bottom line is that we want to control God. See, the reason why I think this tool that I just gave you is so helpful, or this, this skill like, uh, we just talked about is so helpful, is because it does give you a, a, a certain level of agency and control in relationships. It says, actually, I can actually manage pain in a relationship by clarifying expectations. That seems really helpful. And I can kind of control outcome by, like, setting expectations. Like, I like this skill. It's very helpful because I can actually have some agency and control in my relationships. That's what we, we love about it. And I think it's true to some degree. We should have agency and somewhat of control in relationships, control what we can. But when it comes to God, 
you give up all control. That's how it works. You give up all, you do have agency, but we give up control to God. We can, we can pour our hearts out to God, but we give up control. In Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, there's a story of a man named Jairus and a woman who was subject to bleeding for 12 years. And they both go to Jesus with a plan, with expectations of how they see the day going. Jairus insisted when he goes to Jesus in Mark 5 that he insisted that Jesus go home with him and heal his, daughter, his 12-year-old daughter. He's like, just come home with me and heal my daughter. Now, we have an account of someone going to Jesus and saying, you don't even have to come to my house. Just say the word and, my, and the person who's sick at my house, my servant, will be healed. And so we have an account of Jesus not even having to go to the person's house and that he can heal. Jesus has that kind of power. But that was not the Jairus, no, no, you need to come to my house physically, come over and do a house visitation and heal my daughter. So Jesus is like, okay. So Jesus is walking towards his house. Now, at the time, so many people were following Jesus that they were literally pressing around him. It was a bazaar. It was, it was like a mosh pit. It was everyone. And so there's this woman who was walking, and she said, she told herself, and her faith was a little superstitious. She said, um, if I just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I'll be made well. I don't, have to, I don't have to acknowledge him. I don't have to look him in the face. I don't have to do All I have to do is just touch the hem of his garment. And I'll be, I just believe I, I can't. So she does. She like somehow gets into the crowd and like touches the hem of his garment and is immediately healed. She knows she's healed. At that moment, Jesus stops and says, everybody stop. Someone's touching me. Who just touched me? Everyone's touching you. Like literally everyone's touching you. Like people are like smushed up against his face. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I'm not touching you. Like everyone's touching him, right? (laughs) And so actually one of the disciples says, "Uh, everyone's touching you actually. And Jesus says, no, 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 different, different, like different. I, I, someone touched me, and I felt power leave me. Now, this time, the woman clearly knows it's her, but she doesn't want to fess up. And Jesus has to ask again, who touched me? I felt power. And this woman, like, goes to Jesus and says, it was me. But she didn't say, it was me. Praise God. Hallelujah. I'm healed. She says, it was me, kind of sheepishly. And Jesus looks at her and says, your faith has made you well. Because, you know, people can have faith in some pretty tyrannical things, like, I want to make sure that your faith is not in fashion, like my garment. Like your faith wasn't in my garment. Your faith was in me. Your faith has made you well. He places it in the right place. Now, at this time, someone walks up and says, from Jairus' house, and says, oh, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. She's now dead. Jairus is just deeply disturbed, and Jesus looks at him and says, Jairus, do not fear. Just keep believing. Now, I tell this this story from the scriptures because both Jairus and this woman came to Jesus with expectations. The woman wanted a drive-by healing. She just wanted a healing, like, I want to come by, I want to touch your garment, and I want to be gone. I don't want to, like, deal with you. I don't want to know you. I don't want to, like, want to talk with you. Like, I want to show up to church. I want to sit in the back. I want you to, I want you to heal me, and I want to be gone. I don't want to, like, get interacting with, like, other people or you or, like, get my name on, like, a baptism list or anything. I just want to, like, just heal me, and I'll be gone. But Jesus is like, no, no, you're not doing that today. You're, you're going public. I want I want you to know that it's your faith. And so he makes her go public. Jairus was trying to get a healing, and what he got was a resurrection. His daughter died, and Jesus goes and raises his daughter from the dead. 
he, they, both of them go to Jesus and all their plans are thrown out the window in just minutes. All of their plans. And the thing is, is that when one of the realities of, of when you place your faith in Christ is you have to give him way more than you planned. Like, we, we kind of like want to give Jesus just this bit, this like part, like, oh, I want my heart to be healed from this relationship and I, I want to give you like the uncertainty of my future and like my job. I want to give you this like heartbreak that I've had over here. And then we kind of give him this small thing, but Jesus is like, no, I actually want your entire life. I want it all. And we give Jesus way more than we plan, but on the other hand, we get from Jesus way more than we ask or imagine. When you trust in Christ, you have to lose control. And losing control is not easy, especially for, for like a bunch of type A people that live in a city. Like we like to control things. We like to choose. We have like to have options. But with Jesus, like the only option is just to completely trust him. And I know it sounds cliche to say surrender, but it's true. This is what it feels like in our actual bodies to follow Jesus. And that might involve a lot of fear for you. It's scary not to be in control. It feels scary. Can you imagine the fear that must have gripped the heart of the woman when, she, when Jesus stopped and shouted, who touched me? I felt power leave me. Who did it? Can you imagine the fear that must have almost crippled Jairus when he got the message that his daughter was dead? All because Jesus delayed with this woman. I mean, it's a fearful thing not to be in control. But Jesus turned to Jairus and said, do not fear. Just keep trusting in me. See, what Jesus is asking from Jairus is entrust your daughter, entrust the most important thing in your life to me. And I imagine, I can't imagine because I'm a brand new dad, that's the hardest thing in the world, to entrust the most important thing in your life, the most vulnerable thing in your life, to Jesus. And I would imagine in a room this size, we all carry in our lives a lot of disappointment. Disappointment that we kind of wear in our spirituality, that we feel when we show up to church, that we feel when we show up to community group, we feel when, we, when someone prays and says, you know, Who's, who, who's feeling distant from God right now? Or whatever. We feel this. There's a spiritual writer that uh, John Mark and I love to read. We share his quotes often and his books often with each other. We'll call each other and like, what did he say on this subject or whatever? His name is Ron Rollheiser and we've quoted him. He's, John Mark's quoted him a time. I quote him all the time as well. One, in one place, the spiritual writer, Rollheiser, Ron Rollheiser says, you have to forgive God for the way you thought your life was going to turn out. Now, for some of you, you're like, well, that sounds really blasphemous. And I agree, theologically, that is, because God didn't sin against you. But in our spiritual journey, this actually resonates pretty deeply in our spirituality. Because what we do is we hold God at, like, with this contempt, with this, like, bitterness, with this disappointment. If we're really honest, we have disappointment in God because we thought our life was going to turn out a certain way, and it hasn't. And we hold in our lives bitterness. It's not that God sinned against us, but I have to forgive God for my expectations. I have, to, I have to let go of my bitterness. I have to let go of the things that I'm like, my secret grudge that I have against God. My like thing I turn to 
when I turn to sin, like, well, I'm going to go sin because of this thing that I'm so mad at God still about. We have to let that go so we can heal, so we can move on, so we can, like, drop our expectations and say, God, may all of you have all of me. Here I am. Take all of my life. May I become may every single part of my life, the part I hide from you, the part I'm angry about, may you just have it all. And I just want to give it all to you. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.